This morning we continue our series on worship in which we're looking at the different elements of a worship service. And so today we are looking at praise. Why do we praise our God? And so our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant in everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. In early December, Pastor Amanda shared a story with the staff, and I got her permission to share it with you this morning because it's just a delight. At the end of November, Brian and Amanda's daughter Rose turned seven. And on the day of her birthday, they celebrated with family, with cake and presents. A few days later, Rose had a birthday party with some of her friends, also with cake and presents. And so when her younger brother was asked after that party how old her sister was, he said, eight. No, Brian and Amanda corrected, she's seven. But Jacob was insistent. No, she's eight. So when pressed, he explained, she was six, and then we had cake and presents, so she's seven, and then we had cake and presents, so now she's eight. (laughs) I mean, that's just some solid four-year-old logic right there. For Jacob, birthdays are marked by the liturgies of a birthday singing the song, opening presents, eating cake. It is these things that make it your birthday, that, mark your, that make you age by a year. For the rest of us, these are things by which we mark a birthday or celebrate or perform one's birthday. But for Jacob, this was how a birthday happened. These things made the birthday a reality. 
And I think we carry this logic with us to some extent. There are many occasions or realities which we mark with a liturgy of sorts because that solidifies the truth of the reality we're talking about in our minds. Like graduation ceremonies. To graduate from an institution, you just need a signed diploma. But we put on cap and gown, and we shake hands with the academic dean or the principal, and we walk across the stage to solidify in our minds the truth of the reality that we are finished with school. Or think of the upcoming coronation. On May 6, Charles III will be crowned king. His coronation will involve a great deal of pomp and circumstance. And we don't really need a coronation. He is already king. But we go through this pageantry to solidify the reality of his kingship, to mark this transition of power so that everyone will know Charles is king. There's been a long debate among biblical scholars as to whether the people of ancient Israel had a festival in which they celebrated the enthronement or the coronation of Yahweh, of God. The idea was first posed by the Norwegian theologian Sigmund Mowinkel in the early 20th century. And he believed that Israel celebrated an annual enthronement festival around the new year, or the harvest festival, in which they enacted a liturgy, a liturgy celebrating the kingship of Yahweh by going through a liturgical drama of enthroning God. And Mowinkel argued that a number of psalms, including Psalm 96, were part of this liturgical drama. Now, there's nothing that categorically disproves this belief, though the idea has lost support over the years, with some disagreeing scholars arguing that Psalm 96 plays a, a different function for Israel than this liturgical enthronement drama. Right? Some scholars suggest that it should be read eschatologically. It's, it's a word of hope to Israel to remind her to wait for the coming Messiah. Other scholars note the similarities between the poetry in Psalm 96 and the poetry found in Isaiah 40 to 55, which are words of prophecy spoken to the people in exile, assuring them of God's continued presence. Indeed, we can divide the book of Psalms into four sub-books, and the preacher Stan Mass suggests that while book three, which is Psalms 73 to 89, book three focuses on the exile, book four, Psalms 90 to 106, insists that contrary to all appearances, Israel still has a king, that Yahweh is still on the throne. And so Psalm 96 should be read as a psalm of hope for Israel and a challenge to the nations around Israel that think they've got the better of them. And still others say, well, why not all three? Psalm 96 was, after all, a well-used and familiar worship resource for the people of Israel. In 1 Chronicles 16, when David returns the ark to Jerusalem and places it in the tent of worship, he instructs the people to sing Psalm 96. 
This was a song of praise that the people had been singing throughout the generations to declare that Yahweh was king. And it is very declarative in its assertion that Yahweh is king. This is a big song with a big message in the pluralistic society Israel was living in where every different ethnic group had their own set of gods, Psalm 96 says that that just won't do. Yahweh is not just one God among many. Yahweh is the only God. All the gods of the nations are idols, says verse 5. They are empty, nothing, totally useless. But the Lord made the heavens. The God of Israel, the only true God, made not only the stuff that these idols are made of, wood and stone and gold, but made that which is unreachable by human arms. The stars, the moon, the sun, whole galaxies that the human mind can't even fathom. And so the psalmist calls not just Israel, but all the nations to turn from their useless idols, their nobody gods, and worship the one true God. The call in Psalm 96 goes out to everyone, all the earth, the nations, all peoples, families of the earth. No one is left out of this summons. And then turning from their idols, the people are then called to action, to do something. This psalm is full of imperative verbs, commands, directives. Sing, 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 praise, proclaim, declare, ascribe, say, worship, rejoice, resound, be jubilant. Praise the Lord, cries the psalmist. But why? Why do we praise God? God doesn't need to be puffed up or encouraged or motivated. The psalm itself says that splendor and majesty are before him. God already has all the strength and the glory and the honor. We can't add to it or take away from it. So why are we called to praise God? Because sometimes we forget, right? Sometimes we forget that God is King of kings and Lord of lords, the only true God, the one who created the heavens and the earth. Sometimes when we look around, it's a whole lot easier to see evidence to believe in the power of a mighty earthly empire than a victoriously reigning God. In a world where evil still has a foothold, we can feel just like the Israelites in exile, convinced that some other power has won the day, wondering where God is. Wondering why, if God made the heavens and the earth, he can't come and defeat the darkness all around us. 
There is still war in Ukraine and gunfights on street corners and gang violence in El Salvador and oppression in Afghanistan and bullies on our playgrounds and abuse in relationships. Where is the almighty and powerful God here? These things, the reality of evil in the world and in our own lives, makes it harder to see God sometimes. Though the darkness hides thee, says the old hymn, though the eye made blind by sin, thy glory may not see. In Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, the Apostle Paul refers to the thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities that are all vying for our allegiance, that are all attempting to hide the glory of God from our eyes. Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmat, two scholars from Toronto, they wrote a book called Colossians Remixed, and in it they paraphrase some of these, this text from Colossians 1, and they describe how these kingdoms of the world, these empires, change what we see. This is a world, they write, of ubiquitous corporate logos permeating your consciousness, a world of dehydrated and captive imaginations in which we are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to be able to dream of life otherwise, a world in which the empire of global economic affluence has achieved the monopoly of our imaginations. This is an empire full of presumptuous claims to sovereignty, the pimped dreams of the global market, the idolatrous forces of nationalism, the insatiable desires of a consumerist culture. We live, they say, in a culture of death, a world of killing fields, a world of the walking dead. In the face of all of these things, they say, we cannot dream of life otherwise. Our imaginations have been numbed, satiated, and co-opted. I think it's because of this, in large part, that the psalmist calls us to praise. Not so we can give God what he already has, but to shape in us something that is lacking, to restore our imaginations, to shape in us a vision of the sovereign God. This past Tuesday, Pastor Bernie preached at the funeral of Frederica Vendonk. And in his sermon, he talked about how we pay attention to God, how we see God. Sunday morning, he said, was how Frederica paid attention. She could step away from the never-ending chaos of raising eight children and focus her mind. And she did this primarily through singing. For it's in the singing in church, said Pastor Bernie, that the mind can see the things of God. 
by ascribing to God all the things that Psalm 96 lists, glory, strength, beauty, splendor, we remind ourselves of the truth of that reality. By singing songs of praise, we remind ourselves that God is worth praising. We declare what we know to be true, even if we can't always see it, that God is on the throne, that he is sovereign over all things, that he judges the world in righteousness, that in him the world is firmly established. We cannot be shaken. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that within this psalm, this liturgy, the worshiping community is invited to stop singing the old domesticated songs of empire and to announce and thereby enact the new rule of Yahweh. And so we are called to sing, not just any song, but a new song. For God has done something new. Verse 2 calls us to proclaim his salvation. And in Mark chapter 1, this is exactly what Jesus does. He proclaims that in him something new has happened. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And we are called to sing a new song because God will do something new. There will come a day when God will come to judge the earth in righteousness, and the powers of empire will be no more, and our voices will join with all creation in singing God's praise. And we are called to sing a new song, because God is doing something new. He is already, even now, bringing about justice and righteousness and mercy and kindness and love. Commentator J. Clinton McCann says, in a world weary of old patterns of injustice and unrighteousness, the best possible news is that God is still at work, creating new possibilities for life that are properly welcomed, celebrated, and facilitated by the singing of a new song. Did you catch that? Welcomed, celebrated, and facilitated. Our praise helps us to see and acknowledge God's life-giving power in the world, but our praise also brings us into the very process by which God is bringing about new life and possibility. Because, says Brueggemann, it's in our songs of praise, the news that God is king breaks out of the liturgy and begins to erode the old world. The liturgy begins to subvert the empire. By singing songs of praise, we are doing the very thing that the powers of this world would have us not do. We are expanding our imaginations. We are choosing to see, choosing to declare that God is yet sovereign over all thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. We are declaring that the power of evil in this world is limited. And by that declaration, we help make it true. 
We take away some of evil's hold over us. We place our trust in the one who holds us fast. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 doesn't just talk about the thrones and powers and rulers and authorities in this world. It only does so to declare that Christ is sovereign over all these things. This is how Walsh and Kismat put it. Christ is the source of a liberated imagination, a subversion of the empire, because it all starts with him and it all ends with him. Everything, all things, whatever you can imagine, visible and invisible, mountains and atoms, outer space, urban space, and cyberspace, whether it be the Pentagon, Disneyland, Microsoft, or AT&T, whether it be the institutionalized power structures of the state, the academy, or the market, all things have been created in him and through him. He is their source, their purpose, their goal, even in their rebellion, even in their idolatry. He is the sovereign one. Their power and authority is derived at best, parasitic at worst. And this sovereignty takes on cultural flesh, and this coherence of all things is socially embodied in the church against all odds, against most of the evidence. The church reimagines the world in the image of the invisible God. By our praise, we learn to see properly to see things how they really are. By our praise, we banish some of the darkness. And by our praise, we help others to see. To see past what they think is true to what is really true. To see the sovereign rule of the one true God who comes to judge the world in righteousness. And so we praise this day and all our days until that day when we are gathered with all the peoples of the earth and we lift our voices with the heavens and the seas and the fields and the trees rejoicing before the Lord. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, help us to see you by praising you. Through our songs, our prayers, our declarations, expand our imaginations so that we would know that you are the sovereign God, Lord of all, and you hold this world fast. With you, we cannot be shaken. When we find it hard to praise you, Lift up the voices of those around us to surround us. When we know that there is fear or sadness, may we remind others of your presence through our own songs. Give us a song to sing in the morning and words of praise at night that in all of life we would glorify you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.